Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. Kaysen is unable to be with us today. Um, his daughter is in the hospital, his uh, baby girl. Uh, everything is okay, it seems. Uh, she was in really bad shape earlier in the week, but now that they have an IV hooked up, she's doing a lot better. Um, she's, she's not throwing up anymore, and uh, it looks like she's recovering well. So they're still doing some tests to try and determine what's going on. They suspect it's a virus, but uh, are still unsure. So I will keep you guys updated um, when we, you know, find out uh, what the problem is. And, you know, once she's recovered and is able to go back home and everything like that. But that's why Case is in here today. So um, she's uh, she's just over, well, I guess she's one and a half about one and a half years old. Um, so very young. Um, but it seems that it seems that she's recovering. She seems to be doing better today since going into the hospital last night. So in, in any case, um, send your regards to him. Um, best way to reach him is probably on Twitter, uh, sending him a personal message or just tweeting at him or something like that. Um, uh, at Kaysen Sperry, C-A-S-E-N-S-P-E-R-R-Y is his handle. Um, you could also try on Discord. I don't know how often he logs in on Discord. But um, anyways, um, it, I don't want to worry anybody. It seems like she's doing better and that she's recovering. So um, it seems that it's going to be fine. At least that's what he's telling me. So, um, But we'll keep you up to date on on what happens there. Okay. So send your regards to him if you if you want to do that. Um, I'm sure he'll appreciate it uh, a lot. Okay, so, um, well, this one here doesn't really fit into a story of the week. That, that one's more or less a, a weekly topic I want to go over. But um, this week's main topic is going to be why do we fight over video games? Um, this is a really, at least the way that I'm going to try and talk about that or explore that is, is a bit complicated. And like I was telling the chat before we got started here, and as people have been remarking that I look tired, I, I am, I, I feel exhausted. There's kind of so many things that I have going on that I'm trying to manage in life that um, my brain feels a bit scrambled and I don't feel terribly sharp today. So I apologize ahead of time if my rambling is is incoherent today and if I'm not making any sense. Um, I'm going to be heavily relying on neuroscientists and people who do know what they're talking about, but I'm not even sure how like accurate my interpretation of what they're saying is going to be. So this is just a call here at the beginning of the podcast to anybody who has knowledge of these topics, who is uh, is scientifically literate, can you know join this discussion and help me understand it better because this is something that I've been brewing over um, kind of on and off but more so in recent years uh, but for a very very long time this is something that I've observed something I've tried to understand for a long time and it's not just about why we fight over video games it's why we fight over anything it's it's why the range of opinions among people is so vast and how people can see the same thing and have totally different opinions and interpretations about that. How one person can eat 
uh, I don't know, like a, a chocolate and, and find it delicious and, and become almost addicted and obsessive over having that as often as possible. And another person can think it's disgusting. Um, same stimulus, totally different result in the brain is more or less what I'm getting at. Um, so that's going to be the main topic. But before we get there, uh, there was an interesting article I read in the week um, from the president of Nintendo regarding kind of the future um, philosophy of the company and how that looks to be like it might differ a bit from Satoru Iwata's philosophy, uh, which is what led to essentially the the innovate the innovative um, I guess like direction the company was taking with the Wii and the Wii U and the Switch. Right, the switch is kind of the tail end of his sort of influence there, and what we might be seeing in the future. And I also want to talk a little bit about um, the Suikoden review that I'm working on. It's it's getting, I'm editing it now, but I didn't do a um, discussion video for that, mostly because I don't feel I need it as much as some of the previous games I've talked about um, that are more complex than Suikoden is and. But I still want to at least have an opportunity to discuss it a bit and see if um, there are any tidbits of information I didn't know or maybe something that I'm not seeing from, uh, you know, a perspective you guys can offer that might help the way I choose to edit or, or maybe take some things out. Anyways, uh, I just want to at least take a oppor- an opportunity to... Um, discuss that at least a little bit with you guys first. So let's start with the interview from Shintaro Furukawa, who is the president of Nintendo. Uh, I found this interview on Operation Rainfall. They, of course, are referencing this Japanese interview here. So they're translating it from this. So these are the two sources. I will put the source for the Operation Rainfall um, interview or, or article, I should say, in the description of the video, and this first hyperlink will take you to here if you want to take a look at that, if you understand Japanese. I just remembered somebody asked me earlier in the week to send them a link to Kaysen's video about how to learn Japanese, and I totally forgot to get to get back to them on that. Hopefully I'll remember after this <laughs> to go do that. All right. <laughs> Chocolate Rob says there are two types of people in the world, those uh, who love chocolate and those who don't matter. <laughs> chocolate Rob might have a slight bit of uh, confirmation bias there, being a chocolatier himself. Okay, so I'll just go ahead and read the interview here. Uh, I keep saying interview, I mean article. The article on Operation Rainfall. During a recent interview conducted by Nikkei, Nintendo president Shuntaro Furukawa offered some details regarding Nintendo's future in the gaming industry. These comments address the company's approach towards inherent risks, as well as their willingness to innovate and be flexible with industry trends. In the, excuse me, in the translation below provided by Nintendo Everything, okay, that's who translated it, Furukawa discusses the various risks associated with both software and hardware development. We're in the entertainment industry. There isn't much we can do about that risk. To us, the guiding principle by which we operate is offering customers all around the world innovative and unique ways to play games. It's, you know, pretty standard answer. 
Perhaps the most noteworthy piece of this interview, though, comes from Furukawa's final remarks when asked about the innovation dilemma and Nintendo's plans to address future dips in business performance. This is probably in response to the Wii U um, not being a, a, a great success and, and probably maybe even a little bit to the fact that the Switch sales did not hit target goals for last year. Uh, Furukawa indicated that the company would not simply rely on its traditional home console business model. We aren't really fixated on our consoles. At the moment, we're offering the uniquely developed Nintendo Switch and its hardware, and that's what we're basing how we deliver the Nintendo experience on. Or that's what we're basing. That's what we're basing how we deliver the Nintendo experience on. It's not the best sentence ever, but... That being said, technology changes. We'll continue to think flexibly about how to deliver that experience as time goes on. In the long term, perhaps our focus as a business could shift away from home consoles. Flexibility is just as important as ingenuity. Uh, he went on to add, I'm thinking about little ways we can reduce that kind of instability. I'd like to increase the amount of games on smartphones that have a continuous stream of revenue. We're also dabbling in theme parks and movies, different ways to have our characters be a part of everyday life. Okay, so these are telling remarks. I should have probably looked into uh, Furukawa's background. I don't know much about him as a businessman and what his, um, his portfolio is, where he's worked, uh, what his philosophy is, generally speaking. Uh, probably should have looked into that a little bit before forming a final opinion on this or talking about it. But based only on these remarks, which were translated by this guy, so I'm trusting, you know, his, <laughs> the, or these people maybe, um, what they're telling me he's saying, right? Essentially, I'm just trying to say, like, what what I'm about to say about this is not necessarily representative of... Nintendo's direction uh, maybe he misspoke in something he said but it seems to me that he's more of a traditional businessman very different from Satoru Iwata who was a game developer had worked on games like Earthbound um, before becoming the president of Nintendo right more of an artist creator type um, this guy seems more like a traditional businessman and, and it, it strikes me that he, he brings up the fact that the hardware business is instable. I mean, he's not wrong about that. It's not, I mean, it is risky to base your entire company's, um, success and, uh, growth on hardware, you know, the hardware market. Um, it, it's, it's really, things change quickly there. And so you have a, a bad, you know, dud, maybe, um, the Wii U could be an example of that. And, and you, you find yourself in a bad spot for a number of years, if that's kind of like the cornerstone of your business. So it's, it, it would follow logically that you would want to have many different things 
maybe that are different sources of revenue that can keep you going so that you'll be able to take those kinds of risks, right? So it seems like he doesn't want the entire base or foundation of Nintendo to be on their console uh, production and then the software, the first-party software that sort of like accompanies those consoles. Um, you know, we've already known about the fact that Nintendo has wanted to get into movies and other forms of entertainment outside of gaming. Um, and we've we've also known that they've wanted to do this theme park thing for a little while. These this is these are not surprises. These are things we've already known. Um, but what's interesting to me is that this kind of more traditional way of thinking about it that I'm getting from the sense that I'm getting from what he's saying here is is that he wants to make it more stable and make the risks less um what's the word for it he 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 wants the he wants the risks to be less of a risk <laughs> for lack of a better term he wants it to not be as risky even though the business they are in is risky and that's where things like um increasing the amount of games on smartphones that have a continuous stream of revenue comes in and this, of course, for all of us, is uh, a big siren starts going off. It's a big red flag for us, right? Because as uh, Ninjit, Ninjitsu Kid is saying here in the chat, safe art. Uh, those two things are opposed, generally speaking. Art is not supposed to be safe, necessarily. Um, and it, it's it's when you take risks and you do things that are really bold that you either will f fall down. I mean, you just fall flat and, you, and you'll fail. And there's, you know, of course, that's that's inherent in the risk. You'll try something that people maybe don't think about. It's not mainstream, you know, and people might reject that and think it's too weird. Whether it's ahead of its time or whether it's just a bad idea, you know, it just doesn't work for the market and but it's only through thinking outside the box like that that you'll strike the ideas that no one's thinking about and it is the right time for the for that idea and people really go like wow like that's amazing they they you know that becomes an industry trend right so when when a company's become really big like this and we've talked about this a lot in the past uh they tend to try to lessen the amount of risk and they try to hoard and hold on to success and only take you know, only make safe decisions and that leads to the product becoming boring and and you know i think that that has a lot to do with um the law of diminishing returns that i've i've talked about in videos in the past you know how repetition often leads to something becoming boring it's it's not exciting anymore you've done it over and over and over again there's no surprises left in it and uh you know we should always be looking for new and exciting ways um to innovate and and uh, bring an element of freshness to uh to experiences and satoru iwata's entire philosophy was that he was willing to go out of the red ocean which is where everyone's competing over the same pie you know 
Everyone has an idea of, of what gaming is, and they're all there fighting over your attention to get whatever slice of the pie they can. And Nintendo's uh, philosophy under Satoru Iwata was Blue Ocean. We're going somewhere where these people are not currently, you know, fighting into the Blue Ocean to discover something different, which was the entire thought process behind the Wii. Now, whether or not you liked the Wii is, you know, not really relevant. It's 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 the the willingness to take the risk to try something different than what other people are doing, and that sort of defined Nintendo for many many years. And now that the Switch is currently in the market, that was that was sort of the end of Satoru Iwata's influence on the company is what eventually led to the development of the Switch that we currently have. But what this means is that now that that's out, now that that's kind of what they're focused on, internally now, the research and development that's going on is is being headed by uh, Furukawa here and the previous interim president, I forget his name. Um, and... I wonder if we're going to see a more traditional Nintendo console next. Something that is more in line with, you know, like what uh, Sony and and Microsoft have kind of been going after. Um, A high-powered console that uh, tries to garner, you know, all the different third parties to release across Um, multi-platforms. And, you know... There's even a hint here that they might be that they're, they at least the thought is not absent in their minds that home consoles might not even be the way of the future at all. They might be stepping away from that altogether, not in the near future, but like more and more shifting focus onto something like smartphones and uh, tablet devices and smart TVs and things that everybody has. You know, everybody has smartphones now. Not everybody has a Nintendo Switch. Not everybody has a PlayStation 4. A lot of people have a PlayStation 4. But a lot more people have this. A lot more people have this. And I wonder if we'll see Nintendo um, adopt the mindset that, uh, you know, we're not going to necessarily create our own platform. Or we'll create a platform, but will our first-party games? I mean, maybe they won't be exclusive to that. You know, maybe... They'll, they'll think more about trying to get it in the hands of more people. Again, this is all speculation. It's all speculation. But it, it, it's speculation based on the fact that it seems to me like they're thinking differently than, uh, than at least Satoru Iwata did. And it'll be interesting to see the philosophy of this company change and... Um, you know, alter with uh, these new minds sort of taking charge. Um, that being said, they've been doing business a certain way for a long time. They, who knows how much they'll deviate from that. Um, but I don't really know what else, what else to add to this that would just lead to me rambling more on the same points over and over again. But it is something interesting to consider. And um thought I'd bring this up 
and and see what you guys had to say on it as well in the comments. So feel free to sound off and and let me know how stupid I am for uh, thinking that this is a problem or could result in a problem or a change of direction that maybe um maybe we won't like in the future. Anyways. Let's move on to Suikoden. I want to talk about Suikoden a little bit. Um, okay. So, I'm almost... Well, in, in, the, in the entire process of doing a retrospective for the channel, I'm in, like, the latter half of the process now, which is the editing process. I've played the game. I've kind of I've already written the review and recorded it. Now I'm sort of editing it, right? And that doesn't mean that there isn't room for me to go back and add some more to it if need be, which is why I want to do this now. But I would say that all things considered, um, we're about a week away from the review being posted on YouTube. Um, so that being said, uh, I want to talk a little bit about my thoughts on Suikoden and see if you guys have anything to add that I might want to include in, in the review itself. Um... So I really like this game. <laughs> I like this game a lot. Um, uh, it, it's kind of hard to explain, like, my experience with Suikoden because it feels like a game that I grew up playing. I have this kind of, like, feeling as I, as I play the game that is similar to the RPGs I grew up with as a kid, like Final Fantasy VII and stuff like that. But I didn't actually play Suikoden until, uh, I don't know, I was in my early 20s, so maybe like 10 years ago, right? 9, 10 years ago, something like that. Um, and when I hear the music, like, the music's really good, by the way, I'll get into that in a minute, but when I hear the music, it evokes similar, I mean, nostalgia is the only word I can think of, but it isn't that, because I didn't have the game when I was 9. Like, I didn't play it in 1995 when it came out, you know? Um, so, but it still kindles similar kinds of, like, sentiments. It has, like, that classic, amazing RPG feel to it. Uh, but it distinguishes itself in a lot of ways that sort of, like, makes it stand on its own from other RPGs like Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. Um, the wartime storyline in particular, I think, is is really good. Um, you know, follows... Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a cliche, I guess. It, it falls into a lot of fantasy cliches. Uh, a rebellion rising against an empire, racism against, like, between, like, elves and dwarves and humans and, and things of that nature. However, um, and, and the way that I sort of describe this in the review itself is that, like, when you watch a classic, like, Disney animated films, let's say um, Lion King, Mulan, Beauty and the Beast, or even Pixar films like Toy Story and, and, and stuff like that, you know, these, these movies are certainly written for a younger target demographic for kids to understand, right? But they're also mindful of the parents that take the children to see the movies and they you you can watch them as an adult and pick up on things that maybe you didn't see as a kid 
right? So both adults and children can enjoy them, essentially is what I'm getting at. It's cleverly written in that way. I feel similarly about Suikoden. It's clearly written with a younger demographic in mind, at least the translation in English that I'm playing, right? I don't know what it comes across like in Japanese, but the localization in English certainly is written a, a, a bit, it's a, it's a bit simpler in terms of like um, the reading level, I guess. But I still really enjoyed it. That didn't like take away or make me feel like, ah, oh, this is too simplistic. It's rudimentary. Like, you know, this is made for kids. Uh, the, there's a difference between watching certain cartoons. You know, I, I bring up in the review the the 19... Um, the 1980s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons that I grew up watching, right? I watch that today and I get, there's a very different tone there than there is in something like Mulan, right? The Disney animated film Mulan. Like certainly similarities, there's, they're both written for, for kids to watch, but as an adult, there's definitely more depth and richness in Mulan than there is in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the 80s. <laughs> I, I would think most people would probably agree on that. Um, Final Sora brings up Studio Ghibli films, uh, which, which are very similar, right? Uh, can be enjoyed by both. And Suikoden, for me, fits into more of that Disney animated film type of like writing and tone, where there is actually really heavy... Um, subject matter there i mean uh terrorism and and um you know war and and death and loss uh of friends um freaking like patricide like chemical warfare racism like there's all kinds of heavier stuff there but the entire time i'm playing through it i never once like thought any of this material would be inappropriate for kids. And and in fact, the entire time I was like, I wish this had been my first RPG when I was a kid. I feel like I would have gotten a better idea of what the genre is about and had understood it better if I had played this first instead of Final Fantasy VII. That's not to say that Final Fantasy VII is a complicated game. It's not. It's on the, the simpler side, but there, it's definitely more complex than uh, Suikoden is. And as a first-time player, there was so much about Final Fantasy VII that, I mean, I, I've told this story a number of times, but the, my first playthrough of Final Fantasy VII ended on um, the boss fight against uh, Hojo uh, at the end of Disc 2. And the reason is because I didn't understand how to prevent status ailments, so he would put me to sleep, poison me, paralyze me, silence me, all these different status ailments that made it so that I couldn't use my magic. Um, I, I, I was asleep. He was attacking me. I couldn't do anything about it. I was slowly losing health. Like there was all these things happening. I was like, well, how do I beat this guy? Right. I didn't understand the complexities <laughs> of uh, preparation before you go into a boss fight and how you can prevent this kind of thing. Um, so, anyways, if I had played Suikoden first, I feel like I would have gotten a better grasp of that. And so, like, my thought process as I'm, as I'm playing 
the game was like this would be a perfect starter RPG um, for for a kid or, or even a teenager or whatever who has never played a JRPG before. This one, I think, would give like the perfect introduction to what this genre is all about and determine like if I ever have kids like this is definitely going to be the first one I would share with them if they're interested in trying it at all um but like despite the fact that it is sort of like a perfect starter RPG it's 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 a little bit basic it's um easy it is a very easy game overall like on on the easier side um I di- it didn't lessen my enjoyment of it at all like I still really liked it for the same reason that I like watching Mulan or The Lion King or Toy Story or whatever, even though it's not, like, the most complex story and, like, the depth of character isn't, like, the deepest ever. And I don't get, like, this sort of, like, um, exploration of the human condition (laughs) that, uh, you know, is the most profound ever, right? They still are enjoyable to watch and they have... Uh, all of those elements there and it's presented in a way that is enjoyable for for kids and adults and so that's kind of how i feel about suikoden and i and i wonder um what other people feel about it too um it's it's got the the you know the whole 108 stars of destiny the collecting aspect and I generally don't like collectathons like that outside of like Pokemon. Like I got really into Pokemon. I think Pokemon is genius for kids, uh, you know, and, and the whole like trading aspect and trying to get them all like that. That was brilliant. But outside of that game, I'm not much of a collector. And that's why I don't go for platinum trophies very often. I don't care about like completion generally. I'm more just like invested in the story and storytelling. Um, but that being said, uh, I think that Suikoden is, is really good. Um, uh, question from Sanjo here. Would you ever consider reviewing Final Fantasy 13 2 for YouTube? I probably won't ever do a dedicated video on that. No, but, um, I am planning eventually to do one video that sort of gives my thoughts on all of the sequels and spinoffs that, um, that I have played. So we'll see about that. But anyways, um, so with the the um, collecting aspect of Suikoden, um, they sort of combine it with a base building aspect, right? So it's like you're not just collecting for the sake of getting everybody. That's not the only reason. These people also come back to the base at Torn Castle and they offer services to you there. So even though you're probably not going to put all of these characters into your active party and play with them and become attached to those characters specifically. You know, you'll pick the ones that are your favorite, which is the whole purpose of it. Um, the uh, Moriyama, the director and creator of the series, he based the idea of the 108 Stars of Destiny, of course, on Water Margin, the Chinese novel. I'll, I get into that in the review. But that idea actually spurred from the fact that he liked in the manga that he read how these these casts of characters were very diverse and and that there's all these different personalities and that the 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 characters outside of the main hero in these stories he was reading all like had really um interesting design unforgettable personalities and that a person could kind of like latch on to 
the character that they liked and sort of like, oh, that's my favorite, you know, uh, the equivalent to this is like, you know, with the whole Twilight series, you know, are you team Jacob or team Edward? Is that his name? Anyways, people latch on to the, the character that they like, right? And so creating a cast of characters that is wide enough to where anyone playing could go like, oh, I really associate with this character. This character resonates with me. And you would pick the ones you like and you'd form your party based on that. And, you know, anyone who plays, it, it would follow then, would, uh, would find some group that really, that they, they really latch onto, that they become attached to. And uh, anyways, um, even for the characters that you might not latch onto, a lot of them come back to Torin Castle and they offer you services, whether that's selling runes, selling items, running an inn, managing your inventory. Um, they, not all, but a lot of them offer and offer the player something and are useful, even if you're not interested in bringing them into your active party. And I thought that that was really cool. I thought that that was really genius in the fact that a lot of these games with super huge casts like this, like Chrono Cross, um, a lot of the characters feel forgettable. It's like, I'm not, I have no interest. I'm never going to put that person in my party. I, I, I forget their name. <laughs> uh, there's no meaning for me in that character. But it's, it, it, the difference is, is that in Chrono Cross, they would go sit in like an inventory essentially and just you'd never put them to use because they, they didn't, for whatever reason, you know, you didn't become attached to that character. They're just forgotten by you. But in Suikoden, a lot of them come back to Torn Castle and they, like, offer services. And so I thought that that was really good. Um, really, the only thing I didn't like about Suikoden is the inventory management, which is really bad. And I think that this is, people feel pretty universally about this. Um... Every character has their own very small inventory of, I think it's nine items. You can only hold up to nine items, and that includes equipment. So once you, even the equipment you have on, it's equipped on the character, takes up space in that inventory of nine items. So you're wearing a, a helmet, a breastplate, um, I think there's up to two accessories. You have your, your um, some characters could have a shield, some others can't, but then your weapon, right? Well, actually, no, I don't think the weapons are, because the weapons are separate, so I don't think weapons count. But anyways, you'll have four-ish or five pieces of equipment on the character, and half your inventory is taken up already. Now you only have half your inventory, half that character's inventory space left over for restorative items, uh, you know, antidotes and potions and, and whatever it may be. Um, now, you can have six characters in the party, so that's awesome. There's more characters than in most JRPGs in terms of who are fighting. Three in the front row, three in the back row. But you will fill up that inventory so fast that you'll be constantly having to, like, get rid of things, drop things so that you can get what's in this chest. And, um, because they all have separate inventories, because there's not a shared inventory, like managing switching items between characters is really a chore. It, it's, I don't like it at all. I think it's a really bad inventory system, and it would have been better if, like most RPGs, there's just a shared inventory. Everything goes into one inventory, and it's larger than what it is <laughs> in the game. So um, that's really my only complaint with Suikoden. I think everything else is really quite good. I love the... Uh, 
the the abstraction of the, um, the large scale battles with kind of the rock paper scissors mechanic and depending on who you've recruited you can gain advantages like strategically in the battles like ninjas can go sneak into the enemy camp and tell you what their next plan of attack is and the more ninjas you have obviously the the advantage is given that you're no you're going to know what the next attack is from the enemy um because you can just so for I, I think up to three you could get up to like three ninjas in the party that could do that so for three of the attacks you can essentially guarantee victory um thieves have a chance of revealing that as well but you know sometimes they'll just steal stuff uh merchants being able to turn enemies um traitor so that they come to your side uh strategists that can strengthen your melee characters for a charge and you and you do more um damage so all the elements there were really great only problem with it was that sometimes your party members could die permanently in battles that are kind of based on chance and guesswork and you know that's that's not usually a recipe for (laughs) being very happy with the result if you lose a character in a battle where you just guessed wrong right um but otherwise i really i really liked it a lot and the music is phenomenal music is absolutely phenomenal in in this game and i i found it really interesting that i liked it so much because it's not a game that i thought about a lot in the past when thinking about my favorite soundtracks and video games but i i would put it on the same level as any final fantasy game i've played i think it's that good um so anyways those are my basic thoughts on Suikoden, and if you guys have anything to add to that, uh, feel free to do so. Um, but it's, it's a pretty simple game overall, and I don't think it takes nearly as much exploration as, say, Vagrant Story or Chrono Cross or like some of the Final Fantasy games that have a lot more to them than this. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually really like its simplicity. And like I said... If I ever have kids that want to play JRPGs, that's going to be the first one I show to them because it's a very good representation, both in story and in gameplay, to what the genre has to offer. And it's just really well done. It's a very good game, well designed. So, Okay. Let's read some comments here for a second. Uh, never played any Swickening games? Sounds like maybe I should. You definitely should. It's great. Uh, Swigodin 2 was my first JRPG. Just amazing. Um, Let's see. I already read some of those. Speaking of nostalgia, has anyone here played As Divine Hearts? Just got it on sale on Xbox One. Never heard of that before. Um, I only played 1 and 2. 2 has returning characters, but you don't have to play the first. Uh, I was a dumb kid back in the day. Years ago, I played this game at the at the same time that I watched a movie called The Alamo and ended up writing a fan fiction with all the good characters uh, between the first two games where they have to defend their castle from a random army I invented being led by Necklord, and they all died in the end. <laughs> okay. Um, well, if anybody on in the chat or in the comments on YouTube has something they'd like to add in terms of their experience and their thoughts on Suikoden, feel free to share that with me as I work on the review this week. But it should be out um, next week. So uh, that's kind of the, the pace that I'm on right now. Okay, let's get into the main topic for today, which is why do we fight over video games? 
Let's see, how do I preface this? Um, I am a, a, a gigantic introvert. I do not like to socialize. I'm very much like an independent person. I, I don't like to join communities. And, and it's, it's kind of odd that I've sort of created a community with the YouTube channel and the Discord server, but um, anyone who's on Discord will tell you I don't actually participate in Discord um, discussions all that often. This is just how I am. Like, I, I would rather kind of stand alone, uh, be independent, do things my own way, spend my time by myself, than socialize, be parts of groups, be parts of communities, join, um, I don't know, join a, a, a something larger than myself. I'm, I have no innate internal interest in that. And I think that that's not necessarily all that common, even for introverts that I've known. I think that I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm special or anything. I'm just trying to say that from what I've observed, there are, there are definitely a lot of people like me out there. But it seems to be, at least to me, that there aren't, at least in a larger representation of people, people tend to have this desire to belong to a group and uh, of people who think similarly and uh, be a part of a community, feel like they're a part of something, right? Uh, Capdoc says squall alert. <laughs> yes, you could put it that way. Um. So what I tend to do instead is observe people. And I find it fascinating to just like see the way people interact. And especially when it comes to this kind of tribalistic um, pride that people take in their communities and, and in the groups that they've joined. Um, and how vehemently they fight against and disrespect and hate, to be completely blunt, people who belong to rival groups, or even if they're not rival groups, at least distrust people from groups outside of this. Because I think that, this is personal philosophy, like people are way more complex than they want to, uh, than than people want to give us credit for. I mean, we tend to try and create I the identity of an individual based on the groups they belong to, or that they associate with. So, if you have a PlayStation, then you're a Sony Pony drone or whatever it is that you know people the terminology they throw around in these console wars, right? You are, your identity is made up of the stereotypes that, uh, of the groups to which you belong to. And this goes both ways. It goes every way. This is the way people try to paint the picture of the person they're interacting with. They, they see their identity based on who they belong to. This is not necessarily you know, an illogical conclusion. The, the groups that you belong to, the way that you choose to spend your time, the beliefs and ideologies that you hold, 
are all part of defining who you are as a person, certainly. But to what degree you, agree, you um, believe in every piece of ideology of that group is going to be where the variance and the, um, the, sort of for, the nuance of the person comes in, right? Let's say that um, I'll try to keep, keep this from getting political because that's where people really get fired up. I might have I might not be able to avoid it altogether, but I'll try to use examples more from the gaming space since that's what we talk about here. Uh, let's say that um, you oh you've only ever owned Nintendo consoles, right? People might take from that this immediate stereotype or or, or whatever that you're only into Mario and Zelda and these types of games that are made by first-party Nintendo, but could be that, um, you know, you actually don't really like Zelda that much. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's degrees to which this person um, likes and dislikes even I- ideologies within the group and agrees with them or not. But it, it's so fascinating to me how despite the fact that this is true despite the fact that we are all still individuals and that we all have really personalized experience and opinions based on a lifetime worth of unique experience that only that person has we still try in our debates and arguments to paint these people with a a single brush and and make the lines black and white in order to justify our distrust, our hatred and our um, disdain of the, the, the opposing group. We want them to look stupid and basic. And that means that our ideologies, we tend to think that our ideologies become stronger if theirs can look basic and stupid. And this to me is incredibly, (laughs) it's just baffling how common this way of thinking is. And I've really wanted to try and understand. I mean, just today I saw a post a friend on Facebook had commented on and these guys were battling back and forth. This is like... um, a Facebook community that's like essentially, I don't want to say it's anarchist, uh, but it, it's, um, anyways, I'm not going to get into it too much. It's, it's libertarian. So, you know, anyone who's familiar with libertarian philosophy knows their obsession with liberty to a degree that maybe a lot of people would think is, uh, is kind of dangerous. But again, there's, there's nuance in there. There's, there's a spectrum to which are we truly, are we truly anarchists or is, you know, do we fall somewhere in between that uh, d- d- degree to which we need more liberty or less of it or how large should the government be, whatever. There's, there's gigantic variance even within the group. 
of where people fall and what they believe and don't believe. And so you have to get onto the individual level. You have to talk to the individual you're speaking with and understand what their unique perspectives are instead of saying, oh, you identify as libertarian. That means that you think this, 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 and this, and this is why you're an idiot, right? Anyways, these two people were fighting with each other in there. And it was like, these people belong to the same community. They're in the same group. And yet they feel so differently about this thing they're arguing over. And I just find it fascinating that despite this truth, everyone wants to simplify their opponent to um, straw man their arguments, to basically just make them look as simple and easy and black and white as possible. And this is pretty universal, I have found. Um, so, again, this is going to be gigantic rambling on my part. Hopefully, I will lead to a coherent point. But this is troubling to me as someone who tries to see the world in individual perspectives. I don't care what groups you identify with, whether it, we're talking about like social issues, whether you're transgender, whether you're um, uh, what, what your race is, anything like that, what political ideology you hold, um, which, whether you like DC or Marvel, I don't care if you've picked your groups. Because I know for a fact that talking to you as an individual is going to lead to really interesting and unique perspectives that I won't find by just glossing over the traditional beliefs held by your group. You know, maybe uh, you're this diehard DC fan and generally speaking, you, you read DC over Marvel and you, you like DC characters more than Marvel characters, but Spider-Man happens to be your second favorite hero of all comics. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're going to find a person who has individual sort of uh, perspectives on that sort of thing. And when you're speaking to a person, it's so important that you consider their individual unique experience and that you're not trying to just debate or argue with them or discuss, even if it's on, a, you know, a more uh, respectful level of a discussion, that you're listening to that unique perspective. And so often we don't do that. So anyways, let me get to... Uh, I saw the movie um, Arrival uh, when it was in theaters. If you haven't seen it, it's a very, very interesting movie. Um, uh, gold, uh, before I get to this, uh, Golden Savoy says, what's the subject? Uh, hello, by the way. Welcome to the chat. Um, I'm speaking about why we fight about video games and, and more broadly, why we fight and debate about anything, right? So I'm talking about uh, tribalism. I'm talking about... Um, in-group biases and how that affects the way that we talk to each other and have discourse. Um, okay, so I saw Arrival and, you know, it, it took me a lot of thought afterwards and, and, and a little bit of research on the influence of the movie to really sort of like understand what it's exploring. 
Um, but essentially what, it's, what it explores is how different languages affect the way that we perceive the world. Um, and I think that a big influence was the fact that um, there are tribes in, in Africa they found, uh, I can't pronounce this correctly, but Nambian Himbas, right? And they see color differently than a lot of other cultures around the world. They, they see, we're looking at the color red. Uh, let's say me and then a person from from a tribe over here. We're looking at the color red. We literally see and perceive a different color. And what they are finding is that the reason for that is based on the language. They're, the differences in their language and the differences in, say, English that I grew up with in America. The differences in our language is connected to how they are perceiving a different color. And that sort of led into the inspiration for the movie and how, you know, the entire premise of the movie is, you know, an alien ship comes and they have this uh, linguist there to try and, like, interpret the language of the aliens. And in the background, you have all these governments freaking out, like, we're only going to give you a certain amount of time before we're going to, like, attack them and, you know, essentially... The, the job of the lead character is to, dis is to discern what the intentions of the aliens are, right? And the, diff the, the language is, and the writing, uh, the alphabet, for lack of a better word, is so different that she's trying to, like, essentially decipher it and, and figure out why the aliens are here, what do they want, like, all these kinds of things. But what it's really exploring is how differences in language can really affect perception, uh, your perception of the world. And it's, it's really fascinating because that is so true in real life. <laughs> um, let me uh, get these videos over here. This is going to be a little bit long, but I want to play these videos and comment on them as I go through them because... There's so much to this that it's hard for me to keep it all in mind. And so listening to it again will probably spark like, oh, that was the comment I wanted to make on this and whatnot. But uh, we have Richard Axel here who is speaking primarily about um, sense of smell and the way that, that smells are interpreted in the brain. Um, and... I'm going to just kind of play it through. It's going to be a little bit long. I'm not going to play it like the whole 16 minutes necessarily. I'll skip around a little bit here and there to get to certain parts. But I think it's just important to consider this stuff when we're thinking about the fact that two people, even maybe within the same culture, I mean, most, I mean, a lot of you guys are from other countries. Some people are saying they're here from Greece, some people from other countries. But um, according to the analytics of my channel, most of the people watching are from America or the UK. And so Western culture is something we all share, yet still there's such a wide degree of, uh, of difference in opinion. <laughs> Uh, and it really gets down to the individual level um, in the way that we perceive things. I, I was talking this week 
with um, a a viewer of our uh, ours named uh, Mimic. I'm playing through Kingdom Hearts the whole series right now on Twitch, and I'm uploading the videos after I do my Twitch streams to YouTube so people can watch them there. Uh, final source is Norwegian here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have French Canadian here as well, so people all over the place. Um, if I'm from the Bronx and you're from Texas, that's different enough. It, I mean, that's that's true though, right? But that this is what I'm trying to get at is that even in a, a definition of culture called Western culture, there's a huge difference in culture between the state of Texas and the state of New York. It's gigantic. And then even individuals within those, anyways, I'm repeating myself. I was talking with Mick and uh, we had a point of disagreement on the profundity, if that's a word, the profound nature of the ideas and concepts of Kingdom Hearts. My position was that uh, they do a lot of pontificating and monologuing and speeches on ideas of small substance in Kingdom Hearts. That was my position. His position was that he couldn't disagree with that more, that while the presentation might be simple, kind of like I talked about with Suikoden, right? that the concepts are very profound, um, but that they're presented in a more abstract, artsy kind of way in that, you know, people who are very analytical and, and logically minded tend to not really, like, resonate with that. Um, and so we went back and forth, and, you know, I made my case, he made his case, and, uh, you know, provi providing our sort of, like, rationale to our conclusions... And the next video after this one I get to is going to get into that. That's where it gets really interesting um, in terms of how we actually reach our conclusions. But in any case, I was sitting here like spending all this time thinking about it and explaining to him like my position on this. And ultimately, like while, while there are definitely times when someone will, you know, make their case or make their argument and and that person might glean something and maybe have a change of opinion it's it's much much more frequent or more often you'll see that these people just agree to disagree or that they fight about it until they get tired of fighting but very rarely at least in my experience and in my observation do people really change their opinions on things doesn't matter how good the argument of the opposing side is they tend to not feel any differently about it, no matter how factual, no matter how logical the argument of the opposing side. Uh, Ninjitsu Kid says JRPG streamer versus FPS streamer. And of course, I typed uh, verses in there without even thinking. Jeez. <laughs> so anyways, let's get into this a little bit. But this is the reason why I was thinking about it this week and why I wanted to talk about it is because of my conversation with Mimic, because I'm playing Kingdom Hearts, a series that I don't particularly love in the same way that, like, a lot of people do, right? And, and there's a lot of, um, again, we're talking about groups, right? I love JRPGs. Here's, uh, if we're doing a Venn diagram, like, all the JRPGs I like, and then we got Kingdom Hearts over here. There's some overlap between the things I enjoy and the things that, people who really love Kingdom Hearts enjoy, yet we don't agree on this thing. Um, and how do we reach those opinions? Why, why am I, how have I reached my conclusions, despite the fact that there's so much similarity, and this person 
has reached a totally different conclusion, right? That's essentially what I'm trying as hard as I can to understand. So let's get into this a little bit and listen to what he has to say. I know it's going to be a little bit long. Bear with me. If this is not interesting to you, I wouldn't be offended if you decided to click away or stop listening. But I am going to be relying a lot on what these videos say. So. Autopsies and offered to certify me in pathology if okay, I promise this. He's making a joke uh, to here. talk to you uh, about uh, a problem in neuroscience, uh, a, a rather elusive problem, the problem of how the sensory world is represented in the brain. Now, I'd like you to think about this problem because it's an utterly astonishing problem because the sensory world can consists of a set of physical properties, wavelengths of light that encompass vision, frequencies of sound, uh, chemical structures that make for smell and taste. But how can you possibly represent these quantifiable physical parameters in a brain that simply has one thing in it, neurons? And these neurons can only do one meaningful thing. That is, they can fire. They elicit an electrical discharge to allow communication among themselves. And moreover, they can only vary in their firing, in their spiking, <clears throat> in two parameters, time and space. So this world out there, this rich, world that we experience has to be represented by this monotonic array of neurons. Okay. Again, my interpretation of what's being said might be scatterbrained, might be not entirely accurate. And I tried to tell this at the beginning of the podcast because I don't feel entirely sharp today. <laughs> I'm very tired and I'm managing a lot of things outside of this podcast. I was talking about trying to catch up on reading Mistborn for uh, the for the book club this week. I'm writing and recording and editing a review for Suikoden. I have my full-time job. Um, I'm you know trying to put this podcast together and thoughts for that. I'm part of a D&D group. I'm writing a novel. Um, I do streams on Twitch every single day like have relationships and, and people outside that you guys don't know that I try to manage and, and, you know, bring together. So with all of that going on, I might not make sense, but what's, what he's saying here is that the way our brain perceives the world is essentially an abstraction. Um, there are quantifiable properties to light and, uh, wavelengths of sound and all of these things that our senses perceive, our ears, um, smells in the nose, light through the eyes, um, our sense of touch, our senses are sending data um, that is quantifiable. We can observe these things with machines we've created to quantify them, but our brains don't work like the machines we've created, right? They create abstractions to make sense of the data. And the process in the brain 
in which that happens is extraordinarily complex. And that's what neuroscience attempts to solve is how this works. And I mean, we're, we're only scratching the surface. We do not understand the brain that well. <laughs> um, so it, it logically follows that with this kind of complexity in the way that our brains abstract information from the world around us and interprets it is going to be very different from one individual to another. Which I think you can already probably follow where I'm going with this. This is why one person can watch this movie and I can watch this movie with all the different senses and, and all the neurons firing and trying to interpret and follow and and uh, you know all the all the different complexities of storytelling and what this means and how this was said and why this character does what they do and everything else involved with that. Look, think of all the things that your brain is is interpreting in the course of watching a movie and trying to understand its story and its characters and its themes and everything else and whether or not you liked the action. I mean, follow what happened from place to place. It is completely different between two different people. Now, our brains, I mean, their genetics exist and our brains, you know, are structured very similarly. So for most things, we can look at that and be like, that's an explosion. And we can all agree on that, right? We, we can observe something and come to objective conclusions about them. But to apply meaning to things is where it gets really, really interesting. And he's going to get into that in a minute. But it is absolutely astonishing when you consider the fact that that this process, when you understand even on just a, just a basic level, on the layman's level, how the brain is interpreting the senses, the data that's coming through your senses, and abstracts that and, and tries to make meaning of it is so incredibly different between two individual minds. And here is the, the greatest dilemma of all. And this is something that I have been so fascinated by from a young age and something that I'm writing in as a theme to the story that I'm writing, the novel that I'm writing right now. We are trapped each and every one of us is trapped in an individual mind. We can only see and perceive the world through the prism of our individual brain. So the way that I perceive the color red, based on all the experiences I've had, the language I've spoke throughout my life, and everything else that has led to the experiences and, and my knowledge of what the color red means and how it's interpreted in my brain, I can only be sure of the fact that it looks like that for myself. I can't jump into your brain and see the color red according to how your brain is interpreting it and know that we are seeing the same thing. I can't know that. The only way for me and you to share what we think about the color red is to use language. But language, at its most basic level, only has meaning based on our experience with it. <laughs> we cannot transport 
feelings and emotion to each other. But emotion is how we experience life, our emotional responses to these sensory inputs that come to us are how we perceive the world and how we attach meaning to it, how it makes us feel. And I cannot ever, 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 ever transport my feeling about it to you. So you can never actually know how I feel. I have to describe it to you. And based on my experience with language, my um, mastery of language and my understanding of words and yours, that's a very difficult thing to do. Communication is so hard. It's so hard because we can't actually know the emotions and the intentions of people we're talking to. We have to try and make inferences based on what they say. And the more clearly you communicate, hopefully the better people will understand you. But if you're not good at communicating, you don't, you know, maybe that's a weakness of yours. You will spend your life feeling very lonely because people don't understand you and you're spending all this energy to try and help them understand how you feel, but they don't get it. And there's nothing more frustrating than not being understood. Well, at least to me, I hate not being understood, which is why I've dedicated so much of my life to being clear and precise in how I communicate and how I speak and how I write, because I have this real fear of not being understood and, and in people thinking that I'm stupid, it's an insecurity that I have. And so that's why I've spent so much energy on that. Now, This leads into a point that he makes later. Let's see if I can get up to it. Every odor activates a different 50. Okay, so let me try and catch you up a little bit on what he's saying here. So he's saying essentially the receptors in the nose, um, there's, you know, let's say there are thousands of them there that can um, perceive and discriminate between different odors, right? Um, maybe 50 of them fire when you have a certain odor that comes in to 50 unique places, but the combinations that are activated, you know, are enormous. When, you, when you're considering there are thousands of receptors there um, and an odor comes in and activates 50 of them in a particular combination, it sends only those 50 up and then you interpret that, right? Um, and depending on a different odor, it'll be a different 50 and another odor will be a different 50, right? So there's just enormous combinations of the thousands of receptors that could be fired based on the odor that uh, you're perceiving. So he sort of explained that a little bit. Another thing that he explained was that there are very few, um, I guess, uh, senses, let's, let's just stick with odors for now since he's talking about that, that are going to elicit an innate response, meaning um, an automated response. Uh, this is more like a survival instinct, right? Like if, you're, if we're looking at an, an animal's behavior, and uh, they smell a certain thing that it's instinctual for them to flee from that odor. And this is, of course, going to apply to sight, uh, sense of touch, um, and things of that nature as well. But there's, there's very, very few senses that we will perceive that will spark an innate response where we flee from that or um, maybe we, we were drawn to it. Whatever it might be, these are instinctual, automated, innate responses. 
very, very few of those. The list of those that exist is tiny. That where we have innate meaning in that sense. That means something to us innately. For everything else, it is meaningless. When we're born as a little baby and we're sensing these things for the first time, they have absolutely no meaning to us. We have to apply meaning to it through our experience with that sense, that sensory perception we're having. We see a color. That color holds no meaning to us. We have to decide through our experience which colors we prefer, which tastes we like and don't like, and so on. Which um, traits in the opposite sex we prefer, uh, whether we prefer the opposite sex. All of these things we create meaning in as we attach meaning to our experiences. We have an experience and it's um, a negative experience. The way we feel about it is not good. We attach a meaning to that sensory perception now. And that's different than another person who might have had a positive association with that same sense. As a baby, as a young person, whatever it is, that leads in this tangled web of complex personal, unique experience that leads you to your beliefs and opinions. I hope I'm making sense. Chalk Rob says, I have great vision, but an appalling sense of smell. It can be greatly vexing to be lacking in it. I actually don't have a very strong sense of smell either. I really don't. Uh, it's, it's, for me, the weakest sense that I have by far. And, you know, it'll be people in the room, oh, what's that smell? And it's like, don't smell anything. Literally don't smell anything. And that's going to lead me to a lifetime of completely different experiences than a person with a very acute sense of smell. In some ways that are not really noteworthy and others that could be, right? Now, smell, because a lot of people are saying smell is their weakest sense. It's actually true for a lot of humans in general. You think of the sense of smell for bears or uh, predators in the wild. It has to be very, very strong because that's how they survive, right? Um, he actually goes into explaining here that uh, of the 20,000-ish genes that are encoded in our chromosomes, about 5,000 of them are dedicated to our sense of smell, which is, if you're looking at um, uh, you know, evolution and the way that evolution kind of forms species, for, for most species out there, they rely on that to find food and survive, and so it makes a lot of sense that that many genes would be dedicated to that sense, right? But for humans, we don't need that anymore to survive. So our sense of smell gets weaker over time, right? As we don't use it. Anyways. ...points, and I, using sophisticated microscopy that allows the resolution of neural activity, which is about 10,000 times greater than what you see with fMRI, can look into this part of the brain and discern the nature of the odor that the organism has encountered. But that's great. But the brain doesn't have this fancy microscope in it. And so the next question is how does the brain actually look down on this map and interpret the activity? And here things get very interesting. The information from this 
first relay. It's called a bulb in the brain. Goes to many brain regions. It pentafricates. I want to discuss two very quickly. One region, one projection goes to the amygdala, and the spatial map of the bulb is transformed but retained in the amygdala, and this maintenance of space allows this projection to the amygdala to mediate innate behavioral responses. So there are a small number of behavioral responses that in response to the world that are innate. If you think about it, the vast majority of sensory experiences that you encounter have no meaning to you. Okay, so I've already sort of summarized what he's saying here. Let me skip ahead a little bit. That's wild, because what I'm arguing almost is that these sensory cortices are a tabula rasa. They're a blank slate in which neural information is collected and entrained. It's entrained by the learning experience. And so let me very quickly summarize this somewhat um, uh, uh, elusive notion. That is, what I have tried to describe to you is that there are two pathways of information from the nose to the brain. One, which uses space, the particular position of neurons, to encode innate behavioral responses. If you activate neurons dorsally on top, you will lead to aversive behavior. If you activate neurons on the bottom, you will generate appetitive behavior. And then there's this cognitive brain, this cortical region, in which the information is randomized and can have no meaning. That's called a bottom-up process. That bottom-up process, which generates this random representation of active neurons, has no meaning, and therefore it is incomplete. And it must be filled in by a higher order, top-down process, which imposes valence, value, on that meaning, on that information. And as a consequence, then, the vast majority of the sensory information coming into your brain from the world forms a substrate of no meaning upon which experience, expectation, emotion serves to shape the way you perceive the world. As a consequence, everybody's perception of the world is likely to be uniquely personal and quite different. And as a consequence... Okay, so that sort of wraps up uh, his position on that. So, again, because so many of the things that we perceive don't elicit an innate response, an automated response from us, we have to then base our perception on that on our 
individual emotion and uh, reasoning that happens only within our individual brain because we're locked in here this is where we exist this is all we can this is all we can use to understand the world around us and i can't see it the way that you do and my emotional responses my unique experiences are going to shape how i think about that sensory perception in a way that is very likely to be different from another person even if there are similarities and you and i can come together and say you know overall we liked this video game we're discussing <laughs> and and even for similar reasons there are still going to be differences in how we perceived that and the only way that we can try to understand the differences in our perception is through language it's the only tool that we have for me to explain to you my perception of this thing and yours and again language is a very is the most effective way we have of doing that but it can still be very ineffective because the understanding depends so much on the experience of the person you're talking to do they understand the words i'm using are we using the same language first of all second of all what level of mastery do they have over the language that we're speaking am i using words that this person is familiar with am i using the right words in general do we do i even understand the words i'm using <laughs> am i using them correctly do you see how these inefficiencies can lead to misunderstandings quite easily both because of the fact that my brain doesn't work the same as yours in a lot of ways Technically, it works exactly the same way, but the way that we interpret the, the firings of the neurons is different. So that's what I mean when I say our brains are working differently. But also, I might not even be using the right words to activate the right neurons. <laughs> is this making sense? Chocolate Rob says, I learned something interesting about color recognition from a fantasy author's book tour. Women can often see more variance in color because the ability is carried in the X chromosome, giving women two possible filters to see color through. Uh, if you look at colors through a 10 by 10 filter, you see 100 ver varieties. But if you put another 10 by 10 filter over that, but off center, you quadruple the number of boxes, right? So here, here's another example. This is men and women. We talk about the differences in men and women and the way that men and women perceive the world. You know, there are commonalities in how men think and commonalities in how women think. Again, you get down to the individual level, this is going to be different. But um, there... It, it changes your perception of the world that changes your emotional responses to those things and it is impossible to understand perfectly what another person's experience is because i can't jump into their brain and see it the way they do i have to rely on them explaining it to me and we communicate very badly most of the time okay let's move on to the next video here I'm trying to remember so this is a longer one, but there was somewhere around here, I think it was, that he told the story. Really and liked. when the story makes sense and there is no ambiguity in it. Uh, and the next thing that she said was truly extraordinary. Okay, Went, right around here. Uh, it's actually of priming, favorite exhibit, a single interpretation that makes sense. And my personal experience, my favorite experience actually of priming, favorite example, because I don't think there are many published examples that are better, is something that happened to me uh, personally a few months ago. 
where my wife and I went uh, to dinner with a couple and, you know, then... Sorry, I should have uh, primed this a little bit more first. So this is Daniel Kahneman. Uh, same um, event, it looks like. The same... He's at, like, the same podium. This is, like, the same conference or whatever. Um, he talks about essentially two systems in the brain. They're not actually real systems, but he's using an abstraction to demonstrate the point. Sort of like the automated system that sees and perceives and goes through life, you know, almost on autopilot. And then the what he calls that system one. And then we have system two, which is like the higher functioning of the brain that does reason and logic and thinks through things. And that generally speaking, our brain, that's the slower system two and then the fast system one. Um, system one sort of like gets you habitually and instinctually through life, but then it comes across a problem and then it calls down to system two and says, Hey, wait a minute, work through this for me. This is incongruent, right? This isn't making sense for whatever reason. I need you to figure this out. And then system two takes over and goes, okay, let's think about that for a minute, blah, 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 blah. So that's sort of like the premise on which his talk is based on. And of course he's talking about, um, he'll get into how we actually form our conclusions and, and our beliefs and how it's not usually based on reason and logic. We don't form the belief through working through the process of reason and logic usually, but rather we have a conclusion that we believe in already. And we use reason and logic to justify it. <laughs> um, that this is, more commonly, or, or most of the time, how we actually determine and argue our positions. So here, uh, he's, he's giving an example of what he's calling priming, um, when he went to dinner with his wife one time. Afterward, we were exchanging notes, and my wife said of the man and the couple, uh, he is sexy. And, okay, so, yeah. Uh, and the next thing that she said was truly extraordinary and really bizarre. I mean, she said, he doesn't undress the maid himself. He doesn't undress the maid himself. That was very, very odd. And I was trying to understand how on earth, you know, where did that come from? Now, in fact, this is not what she had said. She had said, he doesn't underestimate himself. But the... The, the single word sexy had created a context within which, being slightly hard of hearing, I found it possible to hear a sentence that fitted the context extremely well. Now, what's important, I think, about that story is that I never doubted what I heard. I knew what my wife had said. Uh, there was no question about it. The only question, and that's where my system too was working overtime, is why on earth had she said that bizarre thing? It did not occur to me that the facts were different. It did not occur to me that she simply had said something else. Okay, that's extremely illuminating into how we reason through things, right? His wife did not say the bizarre thing he had heard, which was he doesn't undress the maid himself. But he never doubted what he knew. He knew 
quote unquote, that she had said those words. And so his brain was working overtime to try and justify why she would say that bizarre thing. But the fact was, is that what he knew was actually wrong. What he knew was incorrect. She had not said that. She had said he doesn't underestimate himself. But we first, our brain's first conclusion is to believe or, or never doubt what we believe is true. I don't doubt my perception of it. This is what happened. Why did that happen? Why? And then, then system two, as he says, takes over and starts trying to like work through that. This kind of thing happens all the time in debates where people are going back and forth about their opinions on something or whatever. They're basing how they believe their conclusions on essentially what comes through system one. And they use system two, the higher functioning brain, to justify those things, to make sense of them. And, and, and it's, we almost never doubt system one. We do sometimes, but it's, it's more common that we accept system one as being reality when often it isn't. And this leads to how we form beliefs that might not actually be factual or true, but we believe them all the same and we fight as if they are true. And this is universal. This isn't uh, one group or another is more fallacious. I mean, all, all groups inhibit this because this is a, a flaw, I guess you could call it, in the way that we, the way that we perceive the world and the way that we interpret it. So I'm going to let him continue for the rest of this. This will be another about six minutes, but it's fascinating, fascinating And what stuff. it might do. So my slow thinking was alerted because of the incongruity. And in this case, I failed to make sense of it. So system one, uh, so this is my theory actually of why we think we know things and why we're so confident in what we think we know. The confidence we have in our beliefs is not a judgment, it's a feeling, and it's a feeling that comes about when we have managed to produce, or system one has produced for us because it happens automatically, a story that makes sense. And when the story makes sense and there is no ambiguity in it because the ambiguity has been dissolved away or has been resolved in some way, then we know things. And the essence of knowing things is that there is no doubt, there is no question, there is no alternative way of interpreting the world. Sometimes it's bizarre, sometimes we don't understand it, as in the example I gave. But system one, which is the one that really generates most of our thoughts and most of our emotions and our feelings. Uh, system one doesn't do doubt. Doubt comes from system two. And doubt involves inherently maintaining several possibilities about what is true. And that happens when there is trouble. And that's why, that's when system one calls system two into operation, is when there is trouble, when, the, when there is an incongruity 
is encountered. That, by the way, happens extremely fast and extremely efficiently, and our associative system and associative memory does beautifully in that task. And here my favorite example, again, one I cited in the book, is an experiment in which uh, people hear sentences uh, while the brain events are being, brain is being imaged, and the sentence spoken by upper-class British male voice, don't expect me to imitate it, uh, says, I have large tattoos all down my back. And within approximately... Large tattoos is what he said. I was confused by that the first time, too. Similar to him being confused about what his wife said. Uh, uh, he's, he's drawing on a stereotype of an upper-class Britishman having tattoos all down his back. Approximately one-third of a second, the brain responds with a typical reaction of surprise. And this, in a way, is astonishing, because to generate that surprise, you need to have recognized the voice, your brain needs to have recognized the voice, categorized it as an upper-class British male, brought up the stereotype of upper-class British males, recognized that that stereotype really doesn't fit very well with the ideas of large tattoos down the back, and generated an appeal for help, which mobilizes system two. There is a surprise, something needs to be resolved, and we need to do some work about it. Now, when we encounter arguments, we think that we have beliefs because of arguments, but in fact, it works the other way around. We believe in arguments because we believe their conclusions. That is, the beliefs and the opinions come first, and then we believe in arguments that are psychologically coherent or cohesive with the conclusions we believe in. Here is an experiment that demonstrates that. Students are asked, is the following logical argument a valid argument? And the argument goes as follows. As follows, all roses are flowers. Some flowers fade quickly. Therefore, some roses fade quickly. Is this a valid argument? It's not. Uh, it is entirely possible that all the flowers that fade quickly are not roses. 80% of students at good university says this argument is valid. And the reason that they say the argument is valid is because the conclusion is true. And there seems to be that seems to be sufficient for people, that the conclusion is true, that is, and what they believe by that, they know that some roses fade quickly. Uh, the belief in the conclusion governs the beliefs in the arguments. So this seems to be the key. That, that to me is in incredibly illuminating. And when I'm being honest with myself in reviewing the process of my argumentation or discourse uh, in debates online with people, let's say we're arguing about whether or not Final Fantasy is a good game or Final Fantasy VII is a good game or something like that, right? I already believe the conclusion. I experienced the game. I liked it. I had an emotional response to it. That emotional response leads to my conclusion and my belief. Now I'm going to use my rationale to support the belief and this i feel is 
so true and so indicative of how these kinds of debates go on. This person is convinced, they think they know the conclusion is true, and therefore anything that's being said in the rationale of the person across from them is, is um, it's, it's not um, reasonable. It's, it, this person is unreasonable because they are arguing these things that are, that are not congruent with the conclusion that I know to be true. So I have to use my rationale <laughs> that supports the conclusion and, and I, I'm the reasonable one. See, my argument is reasonable and yours is not reasonable because my argument supports the conclusion. Yours does not support the conclusion. And this is all based on, like I'm saying, the emotional responses to the sensory perception that we've had throughout our life informing what our beliefs about those things are. Now, there's something Riker's Beard has said here that I want to uh, address. He says, I feel this is over-explaining basic, uncomfortable truths about the human experience. People don't form their opinions in vacuums. People are influenced by their surroundings, experiences, desire to connect with other people. Many people don't care to change their opinions because they don't want to leave their comfort zone. And this is comfort in the feeling of not uh, only... This is comfort in the feeling of being not only correct, but part of a group of people are also correct. Yes, you're right. And... Many of the many of the meanings that we attach to things are essentially informed by the people we're surrounded by. So we, we come into a family. That family is a group that we belong to. The beliefs of that family are imprinted on the sensory perception that we get from the world around us, and the meanings from the parents are attached onto us, correct? Uh, and that goes beyond that into political ideologies and everything else for the groups you belong to. Um, the, the issue here is, is not just in over-explaining how this happens. It's not, just, it's not just trying to get to that point that uh, our beliefs are informed by people we trust and the groups that we belong to and that it's uncomfortable. It's that the prism of our experience is is first of all individual we can't share how we feel but how we feel is so important in how we create our conclusions and how we create our beliefs how we feel about them governs that way more than anything else and which is why we can so often come to false conclusions but believe them and and have no doubts about them as if we did know they were true. And when someone comes in and puts and tries to question that, uh, especially when we have positive emotions associated with whatever it is that we're putting into question, that's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling. And this is what essentially builds this sort of like tribalistic nature in human beings because this used to be a matter of survival right you know when we were um competing with uh, predators like lions and and tigers and and dangerous uh predators in the wild um 
survival was based on finding the strongest group, grouping together and being part of the strongest group that there is. And if you became part of the group that was right, that had the right way of going about surviving, then your chances of, of survival went up as well. I feel like this is like a biological instinct, this need to belong to the, the right group, the correct group, the group um, that is uh, the strongest, that will win in the end. And the ones that we perceive to be the right group based on our individual experience and emotional, I guess, uh, imprinting on those individual experiences based on how inaccurate the brain can be in interpreting things leads us to join certain groups. And once we join those groups, it is very emotionally important to us that our group be right so that we can justify our choices so we can justify our lives or our uh our way of life and so that we can say no i'm right for doing what i'm doing and for what i believe and when someone comes in and puts that into question it is emotionally uncomfortable for for that reason and this to me leads into why something as inconsequential as whether or not Final Fantasy VII is a good game or whether Kingdom Hearts is actually profound or not leads to this work in the brain to try and justify your position on it in such a way that leads people to literally fight. And when, in the same way that uh, tribes used to fight tens of thousands of years ago for dominance. And it's crazy to me that you know, at one time that was about uh, having the best territory, you know, with the most food in it and easiest access to water and, and the most temperate climate and the, the, the advantage for survival. But we still have this instinct to fight <laughs> about something as inconsequential as the opinion on a video game or a movie or something like that. And one thing that I feel really strongly about, that I feel really passionate about, and that I've been trying to form in this particular community, the Resonant Arc slash Dark Pixel Gaming community, is a, at least the sense and the, the, the knowledge in the back of your head that this is what's going on when you are talking about these things. And the ability to step back from the reactionary emotional um knee-jerk reaction i guess to someone coming out and challenging your deeply held emotional beliefs on something and and to step back and consider as many um perspectives as possible because in my personal experience as i have done that it has not always but in a lot of cases it has really changed um the way that I see things. Uh, for those of you who've been back since the beginning of when I started doing reviews on the channel, I hated Final Fantasy V the first time I played it. I hated Resident Evil 4 the first time I played it. Uh, more recently, I hated Cloud Atlas, the film Cloud Atlas, the first time that I watched that movie. I watched it again this week, and 
I could not understand why I didn't like it the first time. I was like, this, this is a really good movie. It's brilliant. I, I, I like this a lot. Well, what was I thinking at the time? Um, it has been really important for me to give things a second chance. Now, that doesn't mean that every time I do that, I'm going to end up liking something I hated the first time. My opinions on, let's say, Kingdom Hearts as a series during this uh, playthrough I'm going through right now are largely the same as how I felt about it the first time. But it's important to realize that your personal perception of something is not true <laughs> is the best word I can come up with for that. Not necessarily true because the way that we perceive everything around us is an abstraction by the brain to interpret it. The way that our eyes perceive light, the way that our nose perceives odors, the way that our tongues perceive taste, all of that is an abstraction created by the brain to try and make sense of all of this stuff going on around us but is not necessarily an accurate, quantifiable, observable, objective sort of um, perception of what reality actually is. And so we need to be a lot more skeptical about what we actually know, what we know, and understand that things are a lot more complex than that. People are a lot more complex than that. And that we need to deal with people on an individual level and not try and paint everybody with the brush de depending on what groups or ideologies they, they say they identify with. That each individual person is different. And if we deal with people on an individual level and we check ourselves and our beliefs, what we know to be true, um, it's a lot easier to avoid the kinds of toxic um, altercations and, and destructive um, behaviors that divide us and separate us. And that if we, can, if we can learn about these processes of the brain and how they work and how we should be questioning and be skeptical of our own perceived reality, that we'll get closer to what the truth really is and that we'll be brought together with people in that pursuit. And that is more or less what I strive for and am very imperfect in, uh, in doing. And that's what I realized I was doing this week while I was having this uh, conversation with Mimic, um, you know, trying to justify my conclusion rather than questioning my, what I know, if that makes sense. So that is more or less the topic I wanted to talk about today, and hopefully some of that made sense to you. Let's move on to our community stories. Um, first one comes from Mosenko, also known as Monish Corona, who has um, written a battle theme, like a JRPG-styled battle theme. I'm going to uh, pull up here what he wrote about it, and then we'll listen to it. Do, 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 do. Uh, right there. So he says, Hey guys, I recently made this battle theme, and I thought I'd share it. The piece starts off in 5-4 time, mainly due to the fact that I feel this is odd time signature. Uh, this 
is an odd time signature is a really good way to build tension in a piece. It transitions to 6-8 time, just because I didn't want to use the standard 4-4 time right after the 5-4 time signature. I also transitioned from the key of B minor uh, to G minor as well to keep things fresh. Thought I would end this year with this. I hope you guys enjoy it. So here is Monish Corona and his battle theme that he wrote. I will play a sample of it. And then of course the, the link to this will be in the description. I'm just going to let it go all the way through. It's about a minute left. Okay, so again, that was from Monish Corona. Uh, follow his YouTube channel and um, encourage him to continue making making more stuff. Um, I really liked it. It definitely it definitely feels like it fits within like a JRPG battle. Like um, it's it's exciting. You've got uh, very interesting uh, sort of transitions between your different time signatures, like you explained, and and I liked it quite a bit. Um, so head over to his channel, leave him some feedback, uh, follow him if you thought that was good, uh, talk to him about music production. Um, I have a question here from YT Lyric. It says, hey man, can you listen to my song on YouTube? Uh, definitely. Please follow the Discord server and go into the community story section and share it there. And then I will uh, take a listen to it and uh, possibly share it next week. So um, there's, there's a little bit of a filtering process, not a heavy filtering process, but I just want to make sure that I've listened to it first before I share it live, right? So uh, send it to me there and I'll take a look at it and it'll probably appear next week. Um, okay. Close that. Um, the next one 
comes from Jay Lee. <clears throat> so Jay Lee writes, I love the technicalities. Oh, wait, he was talking to, um, to Monish there. So here's his post. Here's a submission I had just uh, question Mike if I should share or not. And he told me to go ahead. I've been self-teaching music production for almost a year now, but really only half of that has an has had actual commitment to the craft and have a strong interest in hip hop, R&B and pop music and simply want to learn as much as I can to achieve the results I aspire towards. I'm not the best by any stretch of the imagination, but hopefully with some more feedback, I can see the areas to improve further. So here's the latest beat I produced, Winter Nightmares in the C harmonic minor scale, 147 beats per minute. The Z is just for that extra edge. <laughs> so let's take a listen to uh, his track here, his uh, his beat and uh, again follow him on soundcloud give him some uh some feedback if you guys are interested in this style of music here we go go ahead and stop it there um but go ahead and follow again the link is will be in the description there were some people asking how do we uh, get to the discord CapDoc went ahead and um offered a link to the discord there so you can click that to join it and then again you go down to the community stories section there's a category called podcast essentially and that's where you can share news stories with us for stories of the week or your own work with us for the community stories uh, segment um Anyways, though, I'm I'm not a hip-hop guy, so I probably don't have, like, the best advice to give. But one thing that I did notice that I really liked is your balance. The balance in the mix and the way that you bring your the melodies you want people to focus on into the forefront. There's a good example of this with how you change the tone, the tone of the bass. So the bass is sharper here, and then it's going to kind of fade a little bit and you're gonna bring in a, a different instrument to sort of lead, and I like the way that you did that to balance. Oops, over here. So, right here. 
see how the bass takes on a little bit of a different tone uh, in that. You did a good job of sort of like bringing in and out um, the sections that you wanted people to focus on. And it doesn't ever get too muddy to where it's like the, the sound is overwhelming. There's too many things and I can't really focus. So I think that you've, you've done that really well. Um, if anyone else wants to provide feedback to Jay Lee, head over to his SoundCloud page. Link will be in the description and uh, you can um, give him some feedback. For those of you here right now, I guess I should do this now. Huh? There it is. There's the link. For those of you who are in the chat, I'll give you the link to Manish Corona's YouTube video as well. There it is. Okay. Um, all right. Lastly, we have um, FaZe, who writes, Hey, y'all, I finally got around to starting a metal blog, Metal Phase. Combination of my nickname and a reference to Metal Face from Xenoblade Chronicles. I'll be writing about upcoming metal rock albums, reviewing lesser-known albums, and we'll do some larger features down the road. Only made one post so far, which covers a few interesting releases for January. Um, CJ's, uh, the, the, the viewer from last week who was in the, the power metal band, the really, really cool song, he said that his album is included in that. I hope to make one or two posts per week. Anyway, just a hobby thing, and the layout's pretty basic for now. Check it out if you want to. Keep up with new albums or find obscure stuff. Main genres are heavy, power, progressive, symphonic metal, and hard classic prog rock. Might actually do some VGM stuff too. So here is uh, his his blog, Metal Phase. Again, link will be to the description if you're into metal. I'm very into metal. Uh, this might be a good blog to follow to learn about upcoming albums and things of that nature. So I'm going to put that into the chat as well. There it is. Um, so that everybody has access to that uh, if you're interested in following this and if you're interested in metal stuff. Okay. Um, I might save this one for next week. There was one more thing I wanted to go over. There was a question that was asked of us in the, uh, in one, in the comments of one of the YouTube videos, um, particularly on the, the archives for the Kingdom Hearts series I'm doing. This came from THP Island. It said, hey, Mike, I found you talking about uh, being social and your experience with that to be very interesting, as well as being a Mormon and eventually not religious. I'd like to hear a podcast on both your personal life growing up and learning how to be more social. I think it'll make a neat topic and would really be nice to hear. This will probably be something I have to address in a podcast later because we've been going here for quite a while now um so i'll save this and and see if maybe we can get to it next week it'd probably be better if case was there since case and i grew up together and i think that um you you were interested in knowing about kind of our shared experience growing up um i'm not sure if i will dive into the religious aspect of my life in a pub in a public podcast um i would be happy to talk about that with you privately on discord or something like that um but uh the con the topic on uh, personal life and learning how to be more social was something that i touched on a lot in that particular uh, episode and that's probably something that i think i would like to talk about on a podcast at some point so um i'll save your question for next week maybe get to it then um otherwise if you want to know more about like the religious part of my personal life you can feel free to um, send me a message on discord there are a couple people who have done that already and i have not gotten back to you i apologize for that like i said i'm very busy but um, hopefully after this podcast, I can remember to do that. Um, also got book club coming up that I need to prepare for. So 
In any case, that's going to be the end of today's podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for supporting the channel. Um, for those of you who are uh, wanting to join us uh, in our book club, we'll be doing that. We do that every Tuesday evening. We've taken a little bit of a break over the holidays, but we're going to be getting back to it now. Every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. here on Twitch. Uh, Twitch.tv slash resonant underscore arc is, uh, of course, that's right below me. You can see it here. Uh, the Twitch channel in that corner. That's where it is, right over there. So um, follow us there. We are going to be discussing Mistborn, The Final Empire, the first book in the Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson. That's the book we're currently reading. Um, we read all the way up to about one, page 169, which is the just part one of the story. So stop right at part two, chapter nine. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about on Tuesday. Um, I really like this book so far. It's really interesting. Otherwise, uh, look forward to the Suikoden uh, retrospective coming um, a week from Monday. So a week from tomorrow. Um, join me on my Kingdom Hearts streams every day right here on Twitch. Mo Monday through Saturday at 3 p.m. time. What else? Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. You guys are beasts, though. And I will see you again really soon. Have a great rest of your weekend. Peace out.